0: This podcast is created for farmers and powered by Pioneer Agronomy to bring you agronomic insights and proven solutions to fuel forward-thinking farming.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Pioneer Agronomy Podcast, where we keep you one step ahead of local agronomy issues throughout Illinois. My name is Crystal Williams, and I am a field agronomist for Pioneer in Northern Illinois. We are so happy to have you here for our episode here today. We really are trying to bring out some tools that are helpful for you in terms of managing some late season challenges like ear rots and stock rots and corn, and ultimately reduce the impact and headaches that you might experience with these problems um, late in the season at harvest. So um, hope you really enjoy the content. It was a great robust conversation with a couple of other of my peer agronomists across the state of Illinois. But as always, we're gonna kick off the episode with some crop updates across the state, specifically starting in Northern Illinois and working our way south. Thank you.
2: Hello everyone. This is John Colchin, Pioneer Field Agronomist for Northern Illinois reporting from Ogle County on August the 28th, Monday. Want to give you a little overview uh, of our growing season and then uh, where we're currently at for crop growth and development on corn, soybeans, and potential wheat seeding coming upon us in the next month our season in short has been a fast one uh, our heat unit accumulation is uh, well above the 10-year average so the crop's progressing pretty fast and as we take a look at the temperatures that we had last week it, it really moved the crop uh, along as well too our season has been an assortment of planning dates if we go back to april through. Uh, middle of May. So we've got a lot of planning dates to look at. Uh, we've also had an assortment of conditions as far as rainfall, mostly on the below average side for most areas. Some were in a severe drought situation to a moderate drought at least. And so therefore we had a first half a growing season drought. We caught timely rains in the middle. And then as we take a look at this last month of August, we got a timely rain prior to this heat. Some areas did not catch that. So um, quite a bit of variability going into harvest. I think we'll take a look and see that we've got fields of good soil type and that did get some moisture uh through the growing season, although not much will certainly add to um a, certainly a respectable crop and corn and soybeans in those areas and then the other areas that are variable we're going to see you know yields that are going to be certainly average or, in some cases, certainly below average uh, as we take a look at it. this coming up on September the first so. As I look at the corn crop and we will we, we look out the next one to three weeks we're going to mature this crop probably a week earlier than average or normal. And so therefore we're going to want to take advantage of some quick dry down and, uh, you can expect probably to start harvest sooner than, uh, you, you have in the past, uh, on average. Soybeans, uh, as well, I think with this heat last week will, will certainly mature fairly fast or at least at a normal pace. So we could look to see soybean harvest start in actually a couple weeks in some areas with some earlier varieties really excited right now you know to interface with our customers and and pioneer reps as we have our field days and customer appreciation days we can learn a lot about the new products that we're moving into the marketplace whether they be E3 soybeans uh our our chrome lineup with our new products in corner really exciting um i think they're going to even with the stress that we've seen this year we're going to bring some really good performance uh, with the pioneer lineup so excited about that Always excited about uh, visiting with our customers on uh, their agronomic experiences this year. And finally, as we take a look at harvest, we wanna make sure that we're safe. Uh, We also wanna be looking at observations and as we make decisions for 2024 and, and certainly beyond. So next one to three weeks are gonna mature this crop. Harvest is probably gonna come faster than normal. And we'll hope for good harvest weather uh, to get this crop out and and, uh, call it a wraps on uh, this growing season. So we'll see and uh, be safe. Thank you. Hello,
3: everybody. This is Brad Mason, the pioneer field agronomist in western Illinois. As we wrap up August here, I wanted to provide a quick crop update of what we're seeing across the area here as we look at corn we're starting to see the heat and some of the drought effects here over the last couple months really start to take effect as this heat stress has really came in and we've started to see anthracnose top dieback fusarium stock rots really take hold in these corn fields and start to see stock quality really degrade Uh, it's an unfortunate thing going on in the fields but i am encouraging everybody i can to go out and look at fields especially when you're seeing the flag leaf or tassel dead as you drive around or scout. Start checking stock quality as we get closer and closer to harvest here in the coming weeks. As we look at beans, we're starting to see white mold in the Northwest area, south of the Quad Cities there, start to show up as well as SDS. And and some of these diseases are, you know, very sporadic in fields but we also can find some fields that are a little bit heavier infested so i'm just encouraging folks to get out and take a look at crops so that way we can better plan for harvest and hopefully have a a successful and safe one
4: hi this is dave kane field agronomist out of uh, central illinois uh giving you a report here at the end of august um, as we're at this point in the growing season, uh, the finish line is most certainly in sight for a handful of cornfields that's already there as there's been just a, uh, a few operations that have just started nosing into some of the crop. With that said, the, the extreme heat that we had uh, a week or so ago um, really kind of Uh, finished off uh, the corn crop in in many of the places and other places it brought it along very quickly. Uh, One of the things that we saw as a result of some of that heat and was likely a result of uh, some of the weather effects we had earlier in the season is some symptomology of uh, various uh, uh, stalk rots and crown rots uh, type symptoms. We're seeing things like anthracnose top dieback starting as well as some places of uh stalk rots and crown rots more than likely a fusarium crown rot um some of these are happening in uh in the same field where we've got multiple uh symptoms of all these sorts of things with that said my point is is that uh, uh it'll be very important to check out these fields and evaluate them and evaluate what sort of uh harvest uh uh priority that you need to give to each and every field because i think the stalk integrity is going to go pretty quickly on some of these uh fields but um in many cases a lot of the grain was uh either at the finish line or very close to it so it looks like uh kernel fill was pretty darn good in most places um some of the uh some of the lighter soils were seeing some more stress there but otherwise uh, the better soils you're seeing pretty decent kernel fill soybean uh, the early maturities that were planted earlier are starting to turn but other than that we got a little while on soybeans and that's the uh, central Illinois update. This is Pioneer Field
5: Agronomist Scott Everskirt from southern Illinois with kind of an agronomy bi-monthly update. So here we set uh, coming into the first few days of September here at the end of the week and corn crops really like most areas come along pretty quickly here in the last uh, 10 days with the heat we had a week ago. Um, a lot of guys chopping silage were kind of dragging our feet a touch on the front side. You know, silage was a little wet. Um, but now, you know, after last week, silage dried fast. And, you know, these guys are trying to catch up as moistures have fallen extremely fast into silage. And kind of seeing the same thing happening in the grain fields. Uh, most of it, probably the, some of the driest stuff we have so far is, you know, reached black layer a few days ago, so we're talking in the low 30s right now, maybe a few fields getting into the upper 20s, um, but don't expect a ton of activity here uh, very shortly. You know, maybe as we move into next week, look at some guys starting in the high 20s on corn harvest. From a soybean standpoint, you know, we, we plant a lot of different maturities here in southern Illinois, all the way from some late group twos, all the way through, you know, late fours to a few group fives. So some of those group twos now, uh, you know, turning in this part of the world, getting getting a pretty good yellow cast to them. Even some of our mid-group threes that were planted, you know, end of April, mid-April, first of May, are starting to lose that dark green color and You know, we'll be maturing here by the by the end of September and be ready to cut by the third, fourth week of September. So things moving along uh, fairly quickly here in southern Illinois. It looks like, you know, we had some pop up showers there last Saturday as we had slight chances of rain, especially as we move south into areas, you know, south of Perry County. So we're talking Murfreesboro, Carbondale and south. Uh, There's some pretty significant rainfall fell last Saturday. Other areas had much less, you know, looking at maybe just a quarter-inch, two-tenths, three-tenths type deal. So not a ton of moisture. Uh, the forecast looking forward, not a lot of moisture in the forecast. So looks like this crop is going to speed along pretty quickly with the 90-degree the temps coming back, looking like starting Sunday, uh, moving into Labor Day weekend, uh, coming with some higher temps again. So as far as southern Illinois, uh, that's about it for now. Take care.
1: On today's podcast episode, we are going to discuss some timely late season things to keep an eye out for when you're scouting your fields or preparing for harvest and whatnot, um, and really ultimately protecting some of that corn crop integrity. But um, we're going to be talking about ear molds and stock rots. So on today's podcast episode, we have myself, Crystal Williams from Northern Illinois,
0: and Matt Montgomery from West Central, Central Illinois.
5: And Scott Everskirk, agronomist from Southern Illinois.
1: Thank you guys for joining us here today. So talking a little bit before this podcast episode, it sounds like we're starting to see actually some ear molds pop up in parts of the state. So um, would you guys mind sharing what you're seeing and um, just some considerations of that?
5: Sure. So as we think about, you know, the the southern part of the state, um, we did have some pretty uh, it's pretty significant earworm feeding in, in quite a few areas this summer. You know, so if you think about earworms in themselves, you know, kind of the big thing what they do is they really, they open up the end of that ear, right? So whether it's are working on the husk or, you know, damaging a few kernels that are on the tip, but the big issue there is just opening that ear up to potential pathogens that are going to come in there. And I guess that's, that's kind of what we're seeing right now as we look at some of those damaged areas. You know, I'm seeing... You know, some, uh, I guess not only from that, you're definitely seeing some of the penicillium coming on the tips of the ears, uh, seeing some Trichoderma coming in on on some ears, uh, finding a little bit of Diplodia, not a ton of Diplodia, but finding a little bit of that. And of course, uh, you know, the starburst kernels of the Fusarium, some of that's showing up. So, you know, quite a few things going on out there. I guess with all of that said, I'm not seeing anything at really just earth shattering levels. You, know, you can find a lot of those things in the field, but I haven't seen anything yet that, that should cause us any issues as we come to harvest, but definitely definitely, some stuff to be aware of.
0: Yeah, I, I think I'm pretty much an echo of what, what Scott said. Um, I, I don't know if we had quite the same level of earworm feeding that Scott's talking about, but uh, you can see the, the trichoderma, you can see the penicillium, you can see a touch Diplodia, maybe just a little bit of the starburst that he was talking about from Hussarium. Um I, I wouldn't say that we're at some kind of epidemic level, but it's pretty much that typical, almost, I guess, Scott, Crystal, what's become standard tail end of the season story about right. some ear rots appearing.
1: So as I think about um, ear rots popping up, um, a couple of things that I wanted to kind of pick your brains on is um, you know, what are like uh, kind of trigger factors? Uh, any two cents or on that? I think that that
0: insect component, that insect feeding component, is an interesting part of this story, and I'm sure Scott will jump in here and talk about it just a little bit. But we've been on a multi-year trend, I would think, Scott, of of really seeing earworm feeding feeding uptick. You know, I, it it seems to me yeah. like, especially in Midwest uh, Midwest in Central Illinois. Um, you know, back in the day, starting out in the career, you know, talking about earworms or ear feeders was more of a side note. You'd find some, but it does feel like we've been on a multi year trend of that kind of upticking and becoming just a little bit more severe.
5: Yeah, I would agree with that. It, you know, so typically, you know, we always thought it was, it was your later planet stuff that was always going to be the most susceptible to earworms and, you know, that, that greener, lusher stuff later in the season. And, and and we still see that, but at the same time, I, I agree. We're seeing pressure in earlier planted um hybrids and, and planting dates that maybe 20 years ago, we didn't necessarily see the type of feeding in we're seeing today. So definitely seeing some shifts there. Um but again, you know, there's there's weather patterns involved and of course the whole timing concern when moth flights are and everything else, but um definitely definitely seeing some shift and changes over over what we were at 10, 20 years ago. So
1: for listeners, if you're hearing all these different terms or kind of wondering, like, how do I identify? I did find something in my field. What is it? How do I know? Um, a couple of things is so diplodia is more of that pinkish white colory look, um, kind of looks like cotton a little bit. Uh, we already kind of talked about the star um, or the little bursts of fusarium where they're just randomized areas of the plant. Um, but typically a little bit more of that whiter color that we experience. Um, oh, yes, Matt.
0: Oh, oh, I just was going to say the oh. Diplodia one, I always think of as like a white paste almost.
1: Mm-hmm. That's what yeah.
0: it always, it looks to me like white paste that somebody just, I don't know, like they took their their uh, spreader for for making cake and just kind of pasted that junk all the way up and down mm-hmm. that thing. And that's probably an easy one for me to pick out. And then, honestly, the penicillium one's always a pretty easy. pretty mm-hmm. easy one. And then Scott alluded to the starburst. You kind of get these little kind of odd-looking little, it, it, it's really what the name describes, these little kind of pale, almost sometimes reddish streaks stretching out from a central point on the kernel that can be an indication of fusarium. And those are the ones that are easy for me. Scott, Scott, mm-hmm. go ahead there.
5: Yeah, the other one, you know, we didn't mention yet, and this is the one that, you know, hopefully you guys in your part of the world may not see it, but the aspergillus. Yes, you know, yeah. And, and, you know, that we we worry about aspergillus in the drought years, right? So 2012 was really the last year we had a big concern with it, and, and it, was, it was pretty prevalent. And, there, the, you know, the reason we worry about aspergillus is that's your causal organism of aflatoxin, the mycotoxin. Yeah. And which can which can be a big deal. Um, there's no doubt that it has huge implications on what the corn can be used for, you know, and, and what it can be fed to, um, and the levels. And there's even crop insurance implications for for you know if you have aflatoxin in the grain. So so that's one I'm you know I'm really I'm scouring pretty hard for. Um, you know, if you've got some experience in looking for aspergillus and once you see it, you'll kind of begin then to you'll you'll kind of calibrate your eyes to what it is. But you know, I'm telling you, the initial difference between it it and penicillium on the tip of an ear is pretty tough until you kind of recalibrate yourself and really see those differences in color. But typically that aspergillus is going to give you more of that bright neon yellowish green, you know, almost glow at you type thing. To where your penicillin is more of that drab color, right? That more of that army green, you know, yeah. versus that, that bright yellow, um, almost uh, fluorescent type yellow green that aspergillus is going to do. So now the key to note there is, you know, as you think about aspergillus, just because you have aspergillus doesn't mean you're going to have aflatoxin. Uh, but if you have aflatoxin, then you have aspergillus, right? So. Uh, but, yeah, if you do find it, it you know, you want to you start making some phone calls, get your crop insurance uh, agent and adjusters involved. And and uh, I'm sure if, if we find any at all, the elevators will be checking pretty quick. So, because uh, it, it is a major issue as a mycotoxin in the grain.
0: It's kind of the, the dividing line. You know, there's a sharp dividing line between that and all the other ear molds that we're talking about. All the other ear molds are docks you know at the elevator this one's rejection you know if you have it and and you got aflatoxin popping up it's rejection and isn't that one Scott isn't that one crystal that's kind of the the blue light thing they used to do right where they'd run that across kernels and they kind of kind of shine a little bit to also kind of
5: point out that that was present yeah and there you know this stuff can get pretty hot you know i remember some of the readings we were getting back in 2012 and these are these were hot loads i mean that was it was pretty nasty
0: there were real questions that year about what you were going to do you know what what do i do with this grain what are my options
5: you know i I don't want to dwell on aspergillus because hopefully we don't find a lot of it but it is, you know, I, I had, a, I think it was in 2012. Was walking quite a bit of uh, corn with one of our uh, Bill Dozell. I don't know if you remember, you guys remember him? He was one of our research fellows, actually, a, you know, just a great, uh, great pathologist when it comes to corn diseases. And when we when we would find aspergillus, that was the one disease that he would actually get out of the field, wash his hands, and do a, a pretty good thorough cleaning. Mm -hmm. Uh, because there's been evidence stated that it actually has some carcinogenic effects, aspergillus does. Um, So it's it's a pretty nasty little deal. So, yeah.
1: Even from um, on that point too, definitely a huge no-no in terms of um, going to livestock feeding or anything like that. Um, Growing up on a beef feed lot, I know that was one always big topic that I would talk with my dad about in terms of, um, you know, like Matt, you just shared you know there's a hard red line there yeah. um, across the board in terms of um want to keep that out of our livestock for sure huh.
0: and the, the other unfortunate <laughs> thing about all these ear ruts too and this kind of feeds in with just disease in general is the really unfortunate thing about disease be it foliar disease or stock disease or ear ruts there's just no after the fact solutions you know there's nothing we're going to spray on a field once this stuff develops to get rid of it. It's really gonna much much more be management and thinking about what we're doing at harvest time, what we're doing for grain bin storage, all that kind of stuff that really comes in. There's nothing we're gonna do to tame this down once it happens. All the work to kind of tame that down is largely dependent upon nature. And then um, maybe somewhat some management that comes just ahead of that.
5: And I think it's important to know too that even you know a lot of fields with had fungicide applications, you know, there, there's not a lot of direct activity of fungicides on the right. ear run-ups. You know, there could potentially be some indirect effects, right? Keeping that plant much more healthy, maybe it fends it off a little yeah. better type thing. But as far as a direct effect, our, our fungicide applications will have very little effect on these these ear molds.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: One thing that, um, from a management perspective, as we're kind of like tiptoeing into that topic a little bit is um, really the only thing um, for some of these is looking at your hybrid ratings on them Um, and otherwise I feel like a lot of this is more so environment driven and um, management from that point forward that's it kind of gets to be a little bit of a tougher point of the year at this point as we find things out in the field is um, even as we talk about like stock rots here shortly um, you know there's not really anything we can do at this point, you know, in September, essentially what you can do at this point forward um, when you discover these uh, besides timing or moving your harvest schedule around a little bit.
0: Just shooting us a question over to Scott. I mean, Scott, you, you live in a part of the world that's probably even a little bit more intense, probably on the ear feeding side of things than what I am. Have you seen a move because of some of these ear rot concerns to more, Traits that that have provide ear protection, um, you know, that are doing that in your part of the world, or has that become part of the equation, or or is it still rare enough that yeah, there's a little bit of that happening, but it's it's not really become a primary focus.
5: Yeah, I agree. So I think you know the big one there is the the mirror one six two trait, right, the lecture trait, and that and so we're we'll bring that into as many hybrids as we can, um, obviously. You know, I think what we've learned about the Lutro trade from a breeding standpoint is pretty mean trade to work with. You know, you can you can see some pretty uh, some some pretty rough effects. It seems to have an effect on ear height in our genetic packages and pushing moving ear height around, pushing it up. You know, so so obviously we test all that in, in impact. We're looking at all these versions, but yeah, when we can get a, a leptra version of a hybrid and it's a good conversion, yeah, that's definitely something we'll we'll take a look at. I don't know that we need a complete lineup of all Lutro products. Um, but it is definitely nice to have a couple of them in the lineup, spread across maturity, to to give us some options when we know we're going into some of these uh, historically pretty high earworm areas. So,
0: we're probably just a little bit more toe in the water when it comes to the comes to those tape t- traits here in in central. What what about you, Crystal? I mean, do you guys tap yes. this pretty hard, or do you? What do you do?
1: Yeah. So um, you know, after Scott started to say that, I realized I was kind of biting my tongue a little bit on when I said basically all you can really do is look at these scores on hybrids a little bit. But yeah, really from um, those left traits, not really much of a presence um, or very, very little, if any, um, at all in Northern Illinois. Really more so because it's not as big of a pressure um, and not really a driving factor in terms of decision making of trait packages versus something like corn rootworm um that's going to be a lot greater of a focus on us.
5: So Matt, maybe a question for uh, for yourself and Crystal as well. Do you see like if you get a, a field that's got bad diplodia in it, you know, maybe you know creeping up there at 15 or 20%, do you see that as a historical thing, meaning once you get it in a field and you plant corn back there next year? Do you do you see that that opportunity for diplodia to be a, a big issue again?
0: I think there is a little bit of something to that, um, and I'm thinking back, Scott, to, to some of the real spikes that happened with Diplodia, like back in the, oh, like like around oh seven, oh eight, right? We had some real Diplodia spikes in the countryside where it went crazy, and you could tell that thing was building up over time. I mean, I can remember, and you probably remember this, Scott, there would be fields I'd go out to and those kernels rolling into the hopper, they literally were black. They were fruiting right. out, you know, black kernels rolling in there. And that did not happen in a single year's year's time. You know, there was some kind of buildup that was happening. Yes, we had conducive conditions, but that level of outbreak of Diplodia, yes, there might have been some susceptible hybrids there. But you'd tell that, that issue had kind of built up a little bit over time. I don't know if that's what you were kind of – Kind of asking there, Scott, if I was getting close to what you were asking or not.
5: Yeah, I agree. I, yeah, it is, and I think that's from a standpoint of if you look at management, right? So if you do find that field just eating up with it, some ear rots, you know, there 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 is the opportunity that these things kind of linger and build up. So you know, if if you're in a continuous corn scenario, can can you rotate that out for a year or so, you know, and kind of break some right. of those life cycles? Is you know, it can be another management technique. And and again, as Crystal mentioned, really really paying attention to your hybrid selection because there can be some pretty significant differences there in, in, uh, in tolerances to these things.
1: You bring up a good point, though, Scott. I don't know if I've ever really tracked if we did see a more sizable issue of like diplodia and then see what it looks like in the following year. I think that'll be something that I'll definitely keep an eye on here this fall. And... Um, try to track year to year. And I mean, what a great opportunity, like you said, to position a product that is a little bit stronger in terms of some of those ear rots. I forward.
0: think it's also it's also important when we're, we're looking around for ear rots or we think we've stumbled upon an ear rot to take a really good survey of the field. Um, I know I've run into cases where like Japanese beetle was new to an area. And sometimes they were really bunging up that outer edge of the field and you would see a little bit of a Diplodia spike on that portion where they were piling up on the edge and then it would kind of tame down inside. Um, it, it, that's not happening all the time, but some of that does happen. And so some, sometimes it is worth looking at what that actually looks like a little deeper into the field. Um, it, just just worth taking a good survey again because. We're talking about management being a really important part of this and if I don't know what's happening in the field really as a whole if I'm taking a poor sample to figure out what's happening there I may kind of misjudge what I need to do management wise so I've noticed that that occasionally not left and right but occasionally there can be some distribution variability in the field that's worth keeping in mind especially for me where I've had like a, a real intense kind of new area for Japanese beetle or something like that.
1: Now oh, come on, Matt. That's the easiest area to scout. Why would we go even further? We found it. Move on.
3: <laughs> that's right. That's, Who that's goes right. more than six
5: us? Come on. <laughs> so, so kind of, kind of transitioning to a little lower on the plant. So let's let's talk about that from that ear down to the roots and that stalk. And you know, as we think about stalk rots and we we get into late season standability and. So you you guys seeing anything out there in the fields now that's that's causing concern? Things look pretty clean.
0: I think the thing that's concerning me right now, Scott, is just and I know this will have a little bit of time on it that'll probably feel a little dated to some folks, but just you could see some fields starting to fire up. And that always for me is my first little indication. I better start watching that lower part of the plant, in particular. I better start watching those brace roots. Um, I don't know that I've seen real squishy brace roots yet where they get wrinkled. You can tell they're starting to desiccate. That's kind of your first indication that stock integrity is going to go. You can see that instead of that root being fat and round, it starts getting creases in it and, and that kind of thing. I don't know that I've seen that yet, but I have seen plenty of firing that's probably got me concerned.
1: I think one thing um, to kind of answer part of your question there, Scott, is um, I similar to Matt, I haven't seen any specifically yet. Um, but as we start to scout in, um, we'll discuss this in a little bit on the episode about um, some things you can do to check for stalk rots. Um, but one thing that kind of comes to mind, and I'd love you both of you to weigh in, um, is as we saw a pretty dry early end of our season, um, caught some moisture here in July and, um, August has been pretty decent or favorable for us. But I think about, um, a nutrient like potassium that really drives standability, um, or stock strength and the interaction of that with a water molecule and dependence in terms of how that plant intercepts, it really needs that water to be able to bring it up into the plant. And so when we were, dry for such a long period of time. It's not like I'm seeing potassium deficiency right and left throughout a field. Um, maybe in some of the field environments I am, but it kind of makes you wonder what position are we going into a harvest season and um, what shape and condition are those stocks going to end up in?
0: A lot of nutrient stress you're kind of driving at there, Crystal, that can yeah. even, you know, kind of like my point too about the firing, those kind of things, predispose a plant or start to Take a plant down the road of uh, stock cannibalization, which can precipitate into to issues with stock rot. I should qualify, just a little bit, Scott, that there are beyond beyond firing. You know, we do have uh, some anthracnose top dieback occurring in the area. Um, I think Dave Kane, my colleague, he sent out some notes about noticing some plants going. You know, just kind of ghosting out just a little bit um, probably some indications of some rot there so there is is just a little bit of that I was answering for my area and my experience but I probably should pull that comment from Dave into into things here
5: yeah I'm starting to see some of the same thing I think you know anthracnose is one that gives you that uh, that that yellow flag leaf at the top right you know they just kind of stand out as that that top of that plant turns yellow and well, you can almost every time go to the bottom of that stalk, split it open and start to find start to find that pathogen work on it pretty good. So I think the other thing we got going, and I'm seeing too, is that the idea of nutrient remobilization, right? And we know that's been going on in the plant for a while. And I think what we're seeing now is the effects of that, you know, as that, as that plant tries to feed itself, it's not getting what it wants through the roots, you know, so it's, so it's going to find it somehow. And it's, it's going to cannibalize it, as you said, Matt, and remobilize those nutrients into the ear all that it can. So I think we're starting to see a lot of those effects. And corn's just starting to enter that ugly stage, right? It just it is not pretty. It's just gonna get ugly here for the next three, four weeks for the before it, it totally senesces and come by and start rolling. So with some com- we
4: had
0: some comments uh, from uh, from our plant pathology team on campus in Johnston related to anthracnose and that and those they were kind of interesting just talking about how stress um, can influence even even a good scoring a a plant that has a really good score for something like anthracnose how droughty stress can start to to whittle away at that thing and even take a, a pretty decent scored product and and actually hurt it you know and and how the drought component of what some of us ran into can kinda kinda make those numbers a little less firm than what you would want because you're asking an awful lot of that plant and you're beginning to nutrient deprive it, beginning to move stuff around like what Scott was talking, and that that begins to kind of decrease the ability of that plant to to have that defense that it needs to to ward off that stock rot. There those were some interesting comments from From our plant path team that kind of came our way recently.
1: I think that really ties in in other previous episodes um, of our podcast that we've talked about as a group that um, you think of like a healthy plant, um, you know, a corn plant can't really tell you, obviously, like unlike your children where they don't feel so good and then they get sick. Um, But, you know, as a plant goes unhealthy or stressed or Deficient on nutrients, really that opens up the floodgates in terms of disease to creep in and issues to kind of fall in throughout the end of the season. So, um, trying to prevent any stress from happening, obviously, that's not how farming works. Uh, We can't control the uncontrollables in terms of weather and different things like that, but um, really brings up a good point um, in some of the stuff that we've talked about in the past. So, one thing. Um, I mentioned earlier is scouting for stock rots. So, um, you know, we talked a little bit about ear rots, but, um, you know, really that's a little bit more simple as you look out at the ears. That's one thing. But um, for stock rots, there's a few different tests, I guess, as agronomists that we often encourage people to do. So, one is a push pull test. Um, Maybe each of us have our own um, different interpretation of that. But personally, what I do is I will go out. And put my hand underneath the ear on the stalk and try to push that into the neighboring row um, across the thirty inches or whatever your um, planting space or um, planter width is there um, or row width, excuse me, and see if that plant buckles um, below the ear. Then that kind of sends up a sign. And so typically I count off maybe twenty plants or you know measure out a certain amount of area and try to get a percentage wise in terms of how many of them are actually buckling or that stock is um, kind of crimping, I guess, is how I maybe describe it a little bit. And then another way is to do the same exact thing for a certain space, but instead of pushing um, is the pinch test. So basically squeezing at the lower nodes on the stock to see if they, between your thumb and your index finger, um, as you squeeze those together, if they um, collapse or if it stays firm as a healthier plant, um, really those signals of either buckling or um, I don't even know if buckling is actually the official term of that. But um, or as you pinch it and it um, collapses between your finger, basically, that's a great indicator of, hey, let's split this stalk open and see what's going on in here um, and see what type of tissue we've got inside the stem or stalk.
5: Yeah, great great advice, Crystal. And I, and I do a lot of the same thing. Um, and, and even as you're creating those, you know, doing those pinch tests at the bottom, just boy, just stripping those bottom leaves off and getting that leaf sheath off and getting down to where you see nothing but that rind or that stalk. And, you know, really inspecting that to see if you're getting, you know, you're getting in lesions developing on the outside of that stalk. Is it clean? It's going to give you some evidence of maybe what's going on as well. You know, one little thing I like to do is uh, scalp fields this time of year is. It's always easiest to walk down the rows, right? Because you're less resistance. But I I tend to make myself walk across the rows, across the field. And what you're doing is every time you're stepping through a row and you're dividing that row to step through it with your hands, you're you're kind of doing that push test, right? So as you're walking crossways across there and you're dividing that row every step you take, you know, you can get a feel for, for how a hybrid's doing just as you walk across the field. What's really neat is when you do that on a split planter, and you you know you, you can see the hybrid differences and you can you can actually feel that stalk strength as you're as you're walking across that field and feel hybrid differences. So yeah, and then when I find an area that I'm I'm finding quite a bit of you know stuff kinking over, breaking over as I'm walking through, then I'll then I'll stop. I'll count off 50 plants, 100 plants, do a little more thorough of a test. Um, but yeah, just as a quick guide, uh, a quick easy way to do it, I just like to walk crossways and kind of bulldoze my way through there. So.
0: One of the things that I that I I mentioned this just a little bit earlier that I do kind of before we get to this point, um, sometimes it's at this point. It just depends upon the season that we're running into, but things are kind of wrapping up because of this heat a little bit fast, but I will do what I talked about earlier um, and I'll kind of encourage people to do that as well Is you know what good brace roots look like. Get out into the field and start getting down on your hands and knees and looking at those brace roots and start looking for creases. And you know, brace root should be pretty much uniform, smooth. You shouldn't see any creases in it. You start noticing some creases, that's your first indication that things are going to begin to go south. And you, you might be able to triage fields by looking at some of that, even before we get to the point where the push tests really show us, um, you know, which ones have really, really gone on us. You kind of can begin to catch some indications of what kind of a year in general. It's, it's boning up to be for uh, for stock rot, for stock cannibalization, for stock integrity. And then you can also sometimes begin to triage out those fields. Wow, this one is showing a lot of creases. Those brace roots are getting pretty spongy. Um, this one's going to go. Uh, you know, even if you aren't seeing those push tests do anything yet, sometimes that can be a, be a, a early call out that you're going to have problems. Um, it, just wanted to ask this question here real quick we were talking a little bit about um about things to do to manage stuff if I remember right and this goes back to Crystal's earlier comment about not necessarily direct stuff that we're doing to manage stock integrity but indirect stuff it's not really that foliar disease has a direct impact on stock integrity right I mean I think much more you guys correct me if I'm wrong but it's much more the maintenance of plant health and foliar integrity is helping us kind of ward off some of that stuff that slides into a stock rot issue.
1: Personally, I would say um, I think the biggest part with that disease aspect is ultimately diseases are reducing the amount of leaf area that we're having active photosynthesis on. So whenever you do have something like um, insect feeding, Diseases that's going to hinder that, and I think that ultimately increases your odds for um, stock lodging or um, you know stock
5: rots at the end of the day. Kind of thing.
0: Plant health, plant health, plant health matters, right?
5: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, like similar to the the ear rots, I think it's also important to know that when, when you have a field with some potential lodging issues or you find those at harvest, it, it is important to correctly identify what. What pathogen you're you're messing with right whether that's anthracnose whether it's gibberella stalk diplodia stalkerite, whatever it may be because as you look at you know especially in a corn on corn scenario you know there, there are again hybrid differences to the to those pathogens so it is important to, to correctly identify what you're dealing with now year to year there's always going to be environmental uh, drivers as to what's going to be prevalent in a given year but it's also important just correctly identify what you're dealing with and uh, that'll help you from a management standpoint the next year especially in continuous
0: corn. Scott out of that spectrum of stuff I mean that that could potentially cause stock rots we have some things that have some tolerance and then we have some things some diseases that we really don't have any tools in the toolbox for right I mean so to your point of ID incorrectly if it's something like anthracnose we got anthracnose scores on everything and sometimes we even have if i remember right like a jib a jib stock rot score that we can tap into right. there are a few other things like if you were running into like a diplodia you kind of kind of got to take some other avenues to manage that one cuz we don't have and most people don't have some kind of direct diplodia score and and so id does really matter
1: so let's talk about making sure we're identifying the correct stalk rots when we're out in a field. So one thing that Scott mentioned earlier is some of that discoloration on some of the leaves at each of the nodes where the leaf meets the stalk. And really what we want to make sure as we evaluate the stalk first is that we're peeling back the full entirety of that leaf. even. All the way down to where it attached to the node. That way, um, sometimes we get some pollen and dirt that get trapped underneath there and it could cause stock discoloration. So, we want to make sure we peel that off first. One common, it seems like, stock rot that we run into in northern Illinois is chiparella. So, it kind of stands out a little bit in terms of when you split that stock open, it has a pink color to the um, vascular bundles that are infected. So vascular bundles are basically the tissue that provides the flow of nutrients and water up and down throughout the plant. And so when um, you split up in that stalk, it kind of looks like stringy long lines um, throughout the stalk. And so those are what we're talking about here being infected. Um, For anthracnose, we typically see uh, more of a black spot at the node, and that is kind of an indicator that we have something going on inside the stock.
0: That black shiny rind, you know, with uh, with anthracnose, is a, it, it's probably one of the easiest ones to ID out in the field after it's really got going. Um, another tip there with just differentiating between Diplodia and Gibrilla stock rot, um, at kind of the node, you'll start getting some specks, some little black specks at the node and Jib, those black specks actually are above and outside the rind, and so you can take your finger and you can rub them off. And Diplodia is actually embedded in the rind, so you can't rub them off. So that's just a little, another little diagnostic tool that you can use in the field to kind of figure out which, which critter you're dealing with. If you can rub that, those little black specks around the, the node off, probably looking more at Jib. If you can't, you're probably looking more at Diplodia.
1: Any like indicators for something like Fusarium that you would
2: make a call out on? In? Uh that's that's where I get a lab involved. <laughs>
5: yeah,
1: <laughs> it's another look-alike one. I feel like that we yeah. kind of see sometimes. Um, you might see those roots kind of go reddish pinkish in coloration. So I think that's one indicator with that. But yeah, that kind of has the whitish, pinkish discoloration within those vascular bundles again. And um, yeah, just something to keep in mind. But yeah, they to,
0: to your agree point about those.
1: those
0: yeah. yeah, to your point about those pinkish, reddish discoloration, um, because of some of the stuff that we were spotting in our part of the world, the plant pathologist over in Johnston had kind of reminded us it was real important to dig up and slash through the crown itself rather than just going to ground level so you could see some of that stuff you were talking about because they were worried a little bit about fusarium coming in crystal and so they were really encouraging us you know hey just so you can see if fusarium crown rod is going on make sure you dig up the crown slash through it with a knife and actually get a little bit of a look underground which i don't always do that that was a good call out reminder for me
5: other so things too is you know we talked a little bit about gibberella. Uh, it's also important to note that gibberella is the same causal organism for preserium head scab in wheat. So as we talked, you know, we had an earlier podcast that talks about wheat positioning things like that. But if you're finding a lot of gibberella in your cornfield and you're going to plant wheat behind that, you just greatly increased your chances of have a bad outbreak of head scab if you get the the right weather come next uh, come next spring.
0: So really good and really timely call out.
1: Um, so really, as we find these stock rots, again, similar to ear rots and ear molds, really not a whole lot of what you're going to do in terms of like a treatment aspect to fix these problems now that they're already out in the field. But I think the biggest part is, and what I often do with some of my customers is really lining up that harvest order in terms of how you're going to go about. So, Um, The fields that maybe have the highest, um, uh, (laughs) oh my gosh, Um, the highest incident of some stock rats going on, you're going to be really wanting to ideally position that crop or that field specifically to be harvested earlier, just in the case of um, trying to really avoid and limit the amount of stock lodging late in the season.
0: Yeah, don't don't be afraid to be a little bit ambitious if you feel like you've got some stock integrity things going on because that story does not get any better as the calendar rolls along. It's only going to get worse. Right. And, and pick it while you can and before you have a big headache.
5: I think the other thing to know, Crystal, you alluded to it as you think about storage of this grain. So you're going to harvest this stuff and Preferably run it through a dryer and get it dry. But if you're going to store, you got to store some of this grain that's got some decent amount of ear molds in it. Um, get that stuff dry. And I'm not talking 15% dry. If you're gonna hold it for a few months in a grain bin, we're talking 13, 12.5% dry. And at those moistures, you can actually stop it from spreading in a bin. But if you dump a bunch of this stuff in a bin at 15 and a half, 16%, you're just gonna blow air on it. Um you're, you're going to potentially that grain's going to go out of condition pretty fast. You know it, uh, those molds can definitely spread kernel to kernel with inside that inside that bin so get it dry. Get it really dry if, if you're planning on storing it. Best case scenario if you get a lot of damage is get rid of it. Get uh, rid just of try it. Try not to even store it.
0: Yeah. You got a bunch of atomized starch in there and that stuff's just going to go gangbusters on so growing all yeah. that stuff in the
5: bin. Mm-hmm. So-
1: I think as, um, you know, we talk about harvest timing, whether it be ear rots or stock rots, um, I often, whenever I do make some recommendations of, hey, maybe position this as a little bit earlier harvest field, and this one, you know, can wait a little bit, I usually receive a little bit of angst from the farmer because that might not be the order that they have wanted to harvest in, Um, but, and I understand as an operation, you got to make the calls that you got to make, but, um, really these recommendations are purely from less heartache or slowing down, um, in ideally less harvest losses later on, um, because of trying to position these fields, um, just from a pure, uh, harvestability standpoint, you know, so.
0: yeah. Yeah, I, I, you know there is a certain amount of angst when you have to tell somebody, I think this one needs to be picked first and this one second. Um, but boy, that level of angst goes through the roof and to the moon. When you're trying to figure out how you mess with a, a field that's in such bad shape that it keeps plugging up the combine head and you're pulling up root balls and I, you don't want to get to that point. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it, it, the little bit of headache of triaging out how, how you're going to harvest, boy, it has some pretty big dividends compared with what you can be dealing with.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, any other comments on um, managing some of these late season challenges in corn from the group?
5: I think we covered pretty well. Yeah, be safe. I mean, there's always, you know, as Matt alluded to, man, that the headers start clogging up and you know the, the 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 initial thoughts jump out there and clean that thing out, and you know those these combines got the safety switches on the seat for a reason because the header stops when you get up and just just be careful. I mean, there's bad things can happen when you're like we all know you're around moving machinery. So
1: mm-hmm. I'd like to put an exclamation point on what Scott just said. Just um, no matter what rule our listeners might have on an operation or. Um in or outside of a farm, um, really making sure that we are safe in every way that we possibly can be, whether it be from traveling county roads and being in a hurry and not cutting out more time as we travel and um, as we see more and more equipment and um, trucks on the road, really making sure we budget a little bit of extra time in our travels as well as, um, you know, the greatest amount of accidents happen when we're in a rush. And an operation and also on fields or on roads, excuse me, too. So um, making sure that, you know, at the end of the day, we all want to return home to our families and our friends and stuff. So um, I these farm accidents happen way too often and way too quickly. Um, And I'm sure all of us have seen um, a magnitude of those in our years of work and um, never a good time to um, ever see that happen so if we can minimize that as much as possible um and put an exclamation point on farm safety and um, harvest safety that's a really key driver there
0: and all of us have done the stuff that in the rearview mirror you go oh boy that was really a a really bad 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 move all of us have been there right and mm-hmm. known just by the grace of God we haven't got caught
1: mm-hmm. in a bad way so absolutely absolutely well, Thank you for listening today. This has been the Pioneer Agronomy Podcast, where we keep you one step ahead of local agronomy issues throughout Illinois. Thank you, and we'll catch you next time.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode from the Pioneer Agronomy Team. Be sure to visit pioneer.com backslash podcasts to access additional episodes and learn more about our extensive on-farm data and innovative digital tools that are fueling forward-thinking farming.